My name is Steve Adams. I'm really pleased to be able to share with you this morning from uh, the Word of God. We're going to be in the book of Zechariah just before we jump in there. Uh, made this announcement a couple of weeks ago, but most of you weren't here because it was stormy. And today the Lord has given us an opportunity to gather without uh, looking too uh, too difficult out there, although I think the uh, the ice might be an issue later, so we do urge you to be careful. But um, Carter Blackwood, Carter just at the back. Stand up, Carter, so everybody can see your pretty face there. That's Carter. Carter, uh, a while ago, uh, got, he, he uh, got uh, compelled by the Lord to buy a whole case of these uh, DVDs. It's, uh, if you're, um, uh, I guess if you're uh, wondering about the, uh, the existence of God, or if you know somebody that's struggling with the fact that God is real and that he, and that he does exist, um, this could be a great tool for you. And uh, it's also a big encouragement uh, if you know that God exists. He's still an encouraging thing for Christians as well. But uh, so Carter has made him a bunch of these available. He's got a whole bunch of them, and you can grab one from him today. He'll give it to you, no, no cost or anything like that. And uh, yeah, uh, we appreciate him doing that and being uh, being thoughtful like that. Um, you can see him afterwards. So we are in the book of Zechariah, and uh, at uh, 14 chapters, Zechariah is the longest of the 12 books that we typically refer to as the Minor Prophets, and uh, so that would make Zechariah the, the major of the minors, right? Uh, which is actually, you know, probably fairly apt because when we talk about minor prophets, we're not talking about lesser prophets. Uh, we're talking about smaller books or shorter books as opposed to longer books, but they're just as significant. And uh, they, uh, they all um, have, uh, you know, a prominent place in their own right. Uh, I like to fit the books into a chronological historical timeline um, but you can't do that when it comes to organizing them. Well, you can't easily do them when it comes to organizing them in, in the scriptures. Because if we try to organize, and, and actually people have, I've heard a few comments recently of people saying, like, well, how come we're bouncing around? Well, we're not actually technically bouncing around. We're bouncing around in terms of the canonical order, but we are not bouncing around in terms of the chronological order. So if we were trying to put... Uh, Zechariah in the Bible where it fits chronologically, we would have to put it on top of the first several chapters, first six chapters of the book of Ezra, uh, which would be kind of difficult to do. Or what would we do with the, the Psalms? You know, we know where some of the Psalms would fit because we're told, like uh, when uh, David sinned with Bathsheba, he wrote a Psalm and, and, and so we could fit it in there, but we have all kinds of Psalms we don't know when they were written, so where would they, where would we fit them? So, arranging uh, books of the Bible in groups might not be the uh, the best way to arrange them, but there is no there's no easy way to arrange them, and so what that forces us to do <clears throat> is it forces us to learn the timeline. It forces us to learn the storyline, the history, and then fit the writings into that. And so whether we're talking about Psalms or Zechariah or we're talking about Proverbs or any other prophet, books of the prophets, it's really important. It's, um, it's called Bible study. And I know when I bring up, most people know that I'm, I'm kind of a, a history nerd. That's not to say I'm really good at history, but I love history because I see the importance of understanding what has happened. I really do believe that you can uh, predict the future uh, by studying the past to some degree, not with... Uh, uh, absolute certainty, but it's a pretty important thing. And then to be able to fit the biblical books into that history, that's that's important. Uh, I want to read a quote to you, and it might seem a little bit dry and 
lifeless, maybe a little historical, but um, just pretend you're in school and I'm your teacher and I'm reading to you. And you can just kind of enjoy being read to, all right? The uh, text of Zechariah, I'm reading from um, a work, uh, a paper done by the Old Testament Society of Southern Africa, the Department of Biblical and Ancient Studies. Um, and it says, the text of Zechariah places it between the second and the fourth year of Darius I. We've mentioned Darius different times. Uh, Josh has mentioned him different times. We mentioned him different times when we were in the book of Daniel. Daniel, uh, Darius figures prominently in the book of Daniel. Um, uh, during the reign of Darius I, the Persian Empire comprised territories from the Aral Sea and the western edge of the Himalayas to the Sahara and from the Indus River Valley to the Danube. Danube. Uh, that's a lot of territory. That's a lot of real estate. Darius organized his Persian Empire in different protectorates or satrapies. Um, Darius was followed... Uh, uh, Cambyses, who followed Cyrus. Cyrus, remember, was the one who took, uh, conquered the Persian, that conquered the Babylonian kingdom. And then his, uh, I think Cambyses was his son, who didn't last too awful long before uh, Darius ascended to the throne. And so we're in the Persian Empire. And when I say the word Persian Empire, I mean, when you hear the word empire, what do you think of, right? You, uh, hopefully you think of big Big, big, lots of geography, uh, massive real estate. And he was responsible to rule that. And so if you could just imagine, you know how comp complicated politics can be, right? You just imagine what would it be like to rule all of that uh, territory. Um, uh, Darius organized his Persian Empire in different protectorates or satrapies, which included smaller provinces, Judah, which is uh, Yehud in Aramaic, was part of the fifth satrapy called Eber-Nahara. And Yehud, or Judah, was ruled by a governor, which, yeah, no, I won't go there, was ruled by a governor and consisted of a greatly reduced territory comprising Jerusalem and its environments. According to Kessler, it was probably a sparsely populated province, especially when compared to Judah before the Babylonian exile. The specific circumstances of the Jerusalem community are difficult to tell. Uh, we can accept that the economic situation of the community was bleak, and, the spiritual, and uh, spiritually they experienced apathy and feelings of hopelessness. And of course, it was during this time that uh, the Lord called the prophets Haggai, Haggai and Zechariah to initiate the physical rebuilding and the spiritual renewal of the post-exilic, post-exile Jerusalem, the building of the temple. A few weeks back we were in Ezra, and Ezra tells that story. In a couple weeks' time we're going to be in, um, in Nehemiah, which tells some more of that story. But the prophets Zechariah and Haggai fit into that time period. And so we have this, this, uh, this land, this once amazing golden uh, land of, of uh, David and Solomon and, and, uh, and royalty and, and so much potential blessing. And now it's, um, well, let's just say it's not like it used to be. It's not like the good old days that we talk about, right? Um, so one of the important things about this description that I just read to you is that it, it helps us develop a fuller appreciation for the situation as we're coming into the New Testament. Because we're only a few weeks and a few books away from the New Testament. I hope you can appreciate that. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are three historical books of uh, the post-exile, post-exilic period. And Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the three post-exilic prophets. So... Um, Really important background as we prepare the way for, for Jesus and preparing the way for our better understanding of Jesus. So we can understand the context when Jesus comes in to, uh, to the world. So we're in Zechariah today. Uh, then next week, Josh is going to have us in Esther. Then we're going to spend two weeks in Nehemiah, one week in Malachi, and then we're in Matthew. So we are in a period of time that's really very, very preparatory. You can almost, 
you can almost sense this 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 expectation that's that's building uh, as we read through. Um, let me see. Uh, Zechariah is how many of you got to read Zechariah this week? How many of you are reading Zechariah this week coming? How many of you don't ever read? How many of you know how to read? You laugh, but I do fear we are reaching a point in our culture where we're not going to be able to read anymore because we're not going to have to. Um, that scares me a little bit. Um, maybe I'm just old, but but it does scare me a little bit. Um, Zechariah is not an easy read. It's one of the books of the Bible that drives most of us crazy. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about that because Zechariah fits within a group of biblical materials called the uh, apocalyptic prophetic writings. Uh, the the um, We'll, visit, we'll revisit that in, 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 a, in a minute as well. But the book of Zechariah is a large uh, collection of somewhat bizarre dreams and visions, mostly. Uh, it, it consists of two major sections. The first eight chapters um, seem to be anchored or grounded somewhat in the historical context of the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple, under uh, uh, the leadership of Zerubbabel, and uh, Joshua, the high priest, you're talking the first uh, um, six chapters of Ezra. Tell that story, right? Um, the last six chapters of Zechariah uh, have references to enemies of former days, bitter battles, betrayals, mixed with assurances of peace, prosperity, and ultimate victory some, someday. And uh, part of the challenge of interpreting Zechariah seems to be how these uh, last six chapters fit with the first um, eight chapters and making those connections. But I, I guess really uh, whenever we talk about reading something and understanding it or hearing something and understanding it, it really depends on making the, the right connections, right? And so we want to try to do some of that today, just kind of making some of those uh, connections. Um, so... First, I, I want to take a little bit of time and, and share with you, just kind of walk you through some of the first, we're not going to read the first uh, eight chapters uh, or the last six in their total, but we're going to look at just some snippets and try to get a feel for some of how this and how it works. So so uh, if you uh, would uh, open your Bibles or your devices to Zechariah chapter 1, uh, verse 16 and 17, and let's uh, just... Pause for prayer. Lord, we uh, are conscious of the fact today that this is your word that we're handling, that your, your word that we're reading and thinking about and pondering. And, and uh, Lord, we pray that you would use your word today to accomplish your will uh, as you do your work in our lives through, uh, through your word, by your spirit, um, according to your grace and mercy. And we give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, this, uh, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose, choose Jerusalem. So just to reiterate in case you miss it, when you start reading the book of Ezra, and it says that Zerubbabel and Jeshua, when Cyrus made his decree for the exiles to return and rebuild the, the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and Jeshua led a contingency of exiles back for that purpose, and Ezra tells the story of them uh, doing that work. And if you read the first uh, several chapters, six chapters of Ezra, you'll see uh, not only Zerubbabel and Jeshua's story explained there, but you will see also that it references Haggai and Zechariah as prophets who helped Zerubbabel and Jeshua to encourage the people to build the house. Okay? So they were a, 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 a ministry team. They were leaders at that point in the history of, of God's people, leading them back to the land, leading them back to the rebuilding and the restoration of the temple. Um, 
we, by the way, we had some technical difficulties when we when we covered the the book of Ezra back to uh, two or three weeks ago, and it was a storm. Uh, we, our, our recording didn't work, and we 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 lost that uh, that uh, video um, where we covered a lot of those those things. But nonetheless, Zechariah and Haggai, uh, key prophets that served with those leaders at that time. Um, and so here Zechariah is saying, my house shall be built. That's an encouragement if you're doing something when the prophet of the Lord says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. My house will be rebuilt. Now, you, if you read again those early chapters of Ezra, and you have to read those to understand Zechariah, and that's why I stress the timeline, because they started to build and then they stopped because it got hard and they ran in opposition. And for many, many years, nothing happened. Josh shared last week from Haggai how Haggai said, hey guys, what's going on here? Come on. You know, you're, you you got time to build your own house, but you don't have time to serve God. What's what's with that, right? And so that's kind of the message of Haggai that he brought and did an excellent job with that. Uh, if you haven't uh, uh, watched that or heard it, weren't here for it, I encourage you to do that. It was, it was really good. Um, so here in Zechariah, same type of encouragement. Um Zechariah 4, verse 8 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Not only is it going to be built, but it's going to be built by the, by the people that started to rebuild it. So this is, should be a, a tremendous encouragement. You, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. That reference there to despising small things, that's a really interesting, curious reference. You weren't, uh, most of you weren't here when we were in the book of Ezra, but there's some really strong hints here that um, these aren't the glory days. There's, there's an element of disappointment that's working through here as well, because uh, the house, the rebuilt temple, was... Just not as big or not as nice as the uh, temple that Solomon built, and there's theological eschatological question, uh, issues surrounding that, but that we won't have time, don't have time for today. Uh, we will maybe talk a little bit about that when we get in Nehemiah, but. Uh, uh, Zechariah 8, 9 to 13. So here we are in Zechariah 8 now. So the first eight chapters are grounded in this whole rebuilding thing, right? Just stay with me if you, if you can. Zechariah 8, 9 to 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This reminds me of uh, the charge that uh, God gave to Joshua when he was entering the land. If you read through this part, it has that sort of feel to it. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house, uh, house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety for, from the foe for him who went out or came in. Uh, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground um, shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O host of Judah and host of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. So it's a similar type of encouragement that we see in Joshua chapter 1, and uh, it uh, uh, must have been a, a tremendous encouragement to Zerubbabel and, and Joshua and all of those who were working with them. So the first eight chapters, there's a, a, a real uh, uh, tie-in to the rebuilding of the temple. However, there is also in those first eight chapters, uh, there are images and dreams and visions, and some of them are very uh, messianic. What does the word messianic mean? Related to the Messiah. Messiah, uh, uh, the Hebrew for 
Christ, Christ being the Greek, the anointed one, the promised one, the, 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 the saving leader who would come. Uh, we know, learn more about him as we study the Old Testament. We learn more and more and more and more about this one who would come. Starts out with smaller kind of hints and little just things that God drops. And then as, as it goes on, we learn more and more about this one who would come. This, this mysterious uh, uh, servant of the Lord uh, who would be like all of the other leaders and saviors in some really key ways, very, very different. Um, and so in Zechariah, uh, there is, for example, uh, the taking of Zerubbabel and, and, and Jeshua, Jeshua, the, the priest of the day, uh, is used by, it come, appears in, in the uh, words of Zechariah as, a type of the Messiah. So, um, as a symbol of the Messianic king who would come. And it's really kind of neat because one of the things that Zechariah brings out in this is he merges the role of king and priest, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Now, this is kind of, it's kind of new and it's kind of interesting because you know that in the, if you go back all the way back to the law of Moses, you had you had the priesthood, and then as you come up through and you come to the time of uh, uh, Saul, Samuel and Saul and David, you have the, the monarchy, but there were real clear lines there. And, you know, uh, uh, who was it? Um, it was Isaiah chapter 6, King Uzziah. Was it King Uzziah who uh, was struck with leprosy because he went into the temple and went in where, uh, as a king, but not as a priest? And and there was, so there was there were some pretty hard lines drawn there, but Zechariah, we see this merging of king and priest, which is which is important um, or pertinent when you consider Jesus. Do you, do you understand that Jesus was prophet, priest, and king? He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. So we start to see some of this stuff coming together. Uh, Zechariah chapter six, verse thirteen. Well, 11 to 13. Let's read from uh, verse 11. Take from them, this is uh, the Lord speaking to uh, Zechariah, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of, of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, just for confusion's sake. Joshua, Jeshua, same person, not talking about the Joshua in the book of Joshua, because that was not this part of the timeline. You've got to understand the timeline. Joshua, the first Joshua, followed Moses, bringing the people into the promised land. This Joshua is is the high priest at the time when the people have returned to the land and rebuilding the temple. Uh, Say to him, verse 12, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, capital B, Messianic reference, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. So we're seeing this. And again, this is prophetic writing. So it's, you know, it's not as, as clear as we uh, would like it to be. But that's kind of the nature of, of these materials. And there's a reason for that. Um, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. So these things are, are like signs and symbols. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on, that, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engage in its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and then under his um, fig tree. So these are current historical references that Zechariah is making um, uh, Jeshua or Joshua, but they are signs of things to come. The one who would come, the branch who's my, God says, my servant, the branch. You probably, if you read the book of Isaiah, you understand that the word servant there is very much a messianic title. And uh, and don't you lo- just love that statement in verse 9? It says, I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. 
Just ponder that for, for a minute. One day. That reference, every man under his fig tree, is, is, a, is an interesting uh, reference. And you have to excuse me because small things fascinate me. But um, the, it, every man under his uh, fig tree is, is an image that gets, uh, the first time it occurs, and this is significant, the first time it occurs was in the days of Solomon. And it's, it's again, it's, it became like a mantra of the people. It's interesting that the uh, Americans during the American Revolution, guys like George Washington and so on, they picked this up as well, and they actually used it. George Washington used this expression over 50 times in his correspondence when he was writing about the American Revolution. Because it's a dream, you understand. It's a dream where people can look forward and see a time, see a day, when everyone would have their own place and they would be provided for and there would be peace. The Hebrew term really is the word shalom. And it's a term that you would, you would be blessed and you would be well advised to study, to learn what, how the Bible describes uh, this idea of shalom or peace, because it's not just it's not just absence of conflict in the world, although that's part of it. But it's a peace of mind and a heart and a state of being. It's a sense of blessing and provision that encompasses so much more than what the English word peace really does. And I would encourage you to study it more. But this this picture is is there, in the and it's here in uh, in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter two, verse ten and eleven, and. And the reason I'm bouncing around here a bit, let me just explain, okay? So first, we went through some of those passages to see the, the historical tie-in to the building of the temple. Now we're thinking, now we're, I want you to see more of the whole idea of the messianic elements of those first eight chapters. Um, Zechariah chapter 2, 10, 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I shall dwell in the, in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So, um, the idea of people coming from afar and being gathered in, a gathering, a great, a great gathering, not just, not just the exiles from, uh, Babylon, not just the exiles of Judah and Benjamin, but the exiles from all over the world, even to the ends of the earth. It says that phrase, uh, uh, you know, repeatedly. Uh, here he says, many people uh, and strong nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts. Oh, I'm, I just I just jumped on you. I did. I jumped to the bottom of my page. I'm sorry. Um, uh, let's just, Zechariah 7.2. Now the people of Bethel sent to Sherezer uh, and Rejim Melech? maybe, and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord. Just a quick reference there to Bethel, okay? Bethel is interested. Where, what, what, where's Bethel? What is Bethel? Biblically, historically, place, Bethel. Where, what happened at Bethel? Pardon? The, yes, Jacob wrestled with God at Bethel, and it became known as the house of God, but more recently, when the kingdom was divided, when the when uh, Jeroboam said, "Well, if that's the way you want to have it, Rehoboam," then we're out of here. And they took the the ten tribes and and went on their way. They went to Bethel and they built a golden calf there. Right? It's where the expression uh, "a load of bull" comes from. Check it out. I'm serious. Bethel was the center of, of apostate worship of the northern tribe, and it became very significantly connected in with Samaria and the Samaritans and all and and all of the things that the the good uh, faithful Jews despised. And yet, and when and when these peoples of the land is what the what the uh, people of Judah tended to call them, the peoples of the land, when they expressed interest in the building of the temple, remember Ezra and Nehemiah said, no way. You got no part in this. No part of this at all. You have no part with us in this. And that carries all the way through it in the New Testament. But here in Zechariah, I just find it interesting. It's just a little note. I'm thinking here, even, 
Even from Bethel, look at chapters 8, verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. Zechariah 8, 20 to 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once and treat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people are strong nations will come to seek the Lord. See, they're not just, not just Jews. Many people and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew and say, let us go with you, that we have heard that, for we have heard that God is with you. That's the end of, towards the end of chapter eight. Remember, the first eight chapters are tied into the history, uh, current history of the day and the building of the temple. Uh, but this great theme, this tremendous theme of bringing people in, crossing uh, cultural uh, and ethnic boundaries and co- crossing national geographic boundaries, bringing people in. Uh, the gospel does that. Um, and there's this, these themes being developed here. Um, there's another thing that really stands out to me in those first eight chapters. I'm going to skip it because um, because we just for time purposes. But if you read through, you'll also see that there are a number of references there to the type of society that is envisioned, the type and the quality of the society that's envisioned as part of this restored kingdom. Uh, talks about things about like not swearing falsely. Uh, talks about uh, respecting other people's property. Talks about uh, tell, talk, speaking the truth to one another. Talks about about loving one another and so on. You can read through there. Those are important sections. But then there's the last six chapters, and the last six chapters kind of almost like leave the historical setting, as it were. And and there's a there's a pretty clear uh, mar- uh, mark where there's a, a change. You know, and there's different things going on in those first um, uh, eight chapters as well. But the last six chapters, particularly, um, seem to uh, don't seem to be as closely connected in to the to the current historical setting. And when I mentioned earlier that the book of Zechariah is apocalyptic, um, the last six chapters of Zechariah are particularly apocalyptic. Now, when I say apocalyptic, okay, I don't know where your mind goes. Maybe you think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse is from the book of Revelation. But that's not where we first meet them. We first meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Zechariah. And, in fact, the book of Revelation contains more references to the book of Zechariah than any other book in the Old Testament except for the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is the only other Old Testament book that's quoted more often or referred to more often in the book of Revelation than Zechariah. And uh, and I think I'm, I might have mentioned this in the little blurb that I posted too, that there are more references, more quotations in the last week of Jesus' life on earth from the book of Zechariah than any other place in Scripture. And when you come to Zechariah chapter 9, you've left the first eight chapters, and you come in, when we come into chapter 9, one of the first prophecies that we're struck with there is a picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. A picture of the Messiah, King, the Anointed One, the Promised One, coming into, riding into Jerusalem. Now, when did this, which is the the, the picture on the the scene here, uh, this replicated here, when did this happen? When did Jesus ride into, well, before you answer that, let's read it. Um, uh, I'm skipping some stuff there, Don. Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? When, when Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem, when, when did that happen? I'm not looking for the, the date. I, I mean, like, what do we call that? Palm Sunday? Okay. Uh, and what's the Palm Sunday? How does Palm Sunday relate to the crucifixion of Jesus? About a week before, yeah. So the last week of Jesus' uh, earthly life, our uh, life before he was, was handed over to be crucified, what, what do we call that week? Holy week? Sometimes it's called the holy week. Passion week. Yeah. And the word passion uh, means what? That's right. It, it, yeah, that's what the word means, suffering. Uh, the word meaning of passion has probably changed over the last couple hundred years or so. But that's what the word the English word meant, was suffering. And so Jesus is, is entering the, the last uh, week here prior to his the betrayal. Remember the betrayal? Judas, the 30 pieces of silver. That's in Zechariah. That prophecy is in Zechariah. But I love, I love that story in, in the gospel accounts where Jesus is, is says to his disciples, I want you to go into town and, and you go, and I want you to go and you'll find there, you're going to find a, 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 a colt or a donkey, colt, a foal of a donkey, and that no one has ever ridden before. And I want you to go and I want you to get him for me. And if somebody says to you, hey, what are you doing? You say what? The Lord has need of him. The master, our master has need of him. And so they go, and, I, and when you read through that, you know, it's like Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. What prophecy? The prophecy of Zechariah. When Judas went to see the, um, the high priest to talk about uh, how he could, uh, they could uh, get their hands on Jesus, um, and he uh, negotiated for 30 pieces of silver. Um, that's in Zechariah as well. It's Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12, 13. And so uh, these are amazing, amazing prophecies. Now, if you read through, and I strongly encourage you to read through. I really do. And if you read through, you're, gonna read, you're not going to understand a lot of what you read. All right? And that can be discouraging. Um, but here's something that will encourage you. The prophets didn't understand either. They didn't understand a lot of what they wrote. Now I'm talking. I'm talking about the uh, 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 apocalyptic material. So, what is the apocalyptic material? The last half of the book of Daniel that we were in. Uh, the book of Ezekiel. Uh, the book of Zechariah and the book of Revelation. Those are principally that those are principally, and not that there's not some uh, apocalyptic materials in some of the other books, but those are those are the apocalyptic books. Now, what's it mean to be apocalyptic uh, material? It's a particular genre of scripture. Um, apocalypse uh, means. You know what it means. Means unveiled. Somebody said, it? "Yeah, yeah." I mean, when you read, when you pick up your Bible and you open to the last book of the Bible, you know the book that everybody loves to read and nobody understands—the last book of the Bible is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the word. That's the Greek word, uh, apocalypse. So it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ or the revealing of Jesus Christ. Now, here's an interesting paradox, because when we talk about the apocalyptic material of the Bible, we're talking about uh, prophetic material where things are unveiled. But the paradox is, is that although they're unveiled, they're still really confusing and hard to understand, which I don't think is an accident. But here's the thing to encourage you. They didn't understand it either. Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and John... The authors of those books I just mentioned, those apocryphal books, remember? All of them 
had to ask the angels, what is that? Because I don't understand anything I'm seeing or hearing. These were bizarre visions and dreams that they didn't really understand, but they recorded. Now, why would, why would God do that? I think you probably can think of a reason why God would, would do that. I don't think I even need to, to uh, presume to, to, to on, on, on uh, his purposes, all his purposes in it. But, but, um, but it's really fascinating when you come into the New Testament. It's so fascinating. Um, it's like every time Jesus turned around, he was fulfilling a prophecy. But up until that time, nobody had a, nobody knew, like, what was that, what's that party tonight? Zachariah, but some guy, you know, the, he's going to come, he's going to ride a donkey. Like, like what's, you know, what's, what, how, what's that mean? What does that mean anyway? The, the donkeys were, 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 you know, he wasn't riding a stallion. It's not a war horse. It was what kings rode in times of peace, right? And you might, you probably know that, but I just find all this stuff really fascinating. And basically, I've pretty much used my time this morning with you. And so there's a ton of other things that I would like to say. So I'm going to try in the next five minutes to say something meaningful that doesn't leave all of these loose ends. All right, you're going to have to help me with that. Um, so. A few other places in those last six chapters where the prophet Zechariah issues these, these, these statements that become um, profound and amazing prophecies of Jesus. I mentioned the one about riding into Jerusalem, but, uh, oh, let me see. Um, let me just, I mentioned, I mentioned the 30 pieces of silver, but let me jump to this one. Uh, I can find it in my notes. Um, yeah, I'm going to skip that material too. Pardon? Yeah, that is where I want to go. I want to go to 1210 and I want to go to Zechariah 14 uh, and, and end there. But I, I want to say though, as, as you're turning Zechariah chapter 12 and 14, that there is a lot of material in those last six chapters too about um, one of the themes is uh, the theme of leadership and there's a lot in there about the shepherds and about the shepherd. And the shepherd is a messianic reference but uh, uh, most of the time in there. But there's also the shepherds and there's a lot that gets said in there and that becomes part of the context for these uh, prophecies about the one who would come who would be uh, the shepherd. And even to the point where um, it says in Zechariah 9.16, on that day the Lord, uh, their God, will save them as the flock of his people for like uh, jewels that shine in his crown. That's not the one. Where is it? Uh, uh, therefore the people wander like sheep. Yeah, Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. The people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Mark 6. 34, when Jesus came out and he saw the people, he was moved with compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So uh, what I'm trying to get to say to you is this, that this is all about Jesus, okay? It's all about Jesus. And the passage that um, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 is a, says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, if you study through, and you'll probably come to the conclusion that the timing of this is, 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 is difficult. Timeline is one of the things that's really hard when you get into apocalyptic writings. Things do bounce around. And, and there's not, it's not neat and not tidy at all. It's the exact opposite of that. And that's why it drives us crazy. We don't know, is this referring to sometime in the far distant future? And, and we believe it is. There's going to come a time when the nation of Israel is going to experience a revival, an actual spiritual revival that's going to be, I call it a revival, but that's probably not the best term for it. But they're going to, they're going to en masse 
realize. They're going to, they're going to see. And we believe that this will ultimately be fulfilled when Christ comes again. Okay, But as you probably know by now, when it comes to biblical prophecy, oftentimes the fulfillment of biblical prophecy is not simply a one-time type thing, that there are uh, sequential fulfillments or partial fulfillments. And uh, so, for example, when Jesus was on the cross and he was, his body was pierced there, uh, you know, think about Thomas. Thomas said, unless I see the scars, I will not believe. And, and Jesus, when he appeared to Thomas later in the 12, he said, look at my hands. Look at my side. And Thomas dropped to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. So these, these are prophetic. Uh, these are uh, very important uh, prophecies of, of the Lord. I just wonder as we as we get ready to close our time together today, you know, there's just so much, so much there. Uh, but I wonder, have you, have you thought about the scars that Jesus bears? Is that something that you've spent any time in your life thinking about? You know, the scripture says that someday we'll all stand before the Lord. Um, Someday we'll see those scars in his hands. He still has them. And uh, it says here that uh, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I'm reading from chapter 12, verse 10, uh, a spirit of grace. It's like God allowing them to see. God is graciously allowing them to see. Has God graciously allowed you to see the scars that Jesus bears that he got in the house of his friends, it says in Zechariah, for you? The last passage uh, that I had in my notes, and I skipped uh, uh, several pages here, as usual, but Zechariah 14 says that on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will split. And, and uh, yet there's, there's, uh, there's all kinds of uh, what we call eschatological uh, factors in there when that's going to you know, happen someday in the future. But, you know, where did Jesus ascend from? Mount of Olives, right? But I want to... Uh, I want to close with this. It seems to me when we talk about looking on him whom we have pierced, it says they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn. There's a couple of things. There's a couple of things there. Number one is the awareness of what we have done. Think about that. As people become aware of what we have done. You realize it was your sin and mine that put Jesus on the cross, right? And yeah, the, the Jewish people rejected him when he rode into Jerusalem that day, and they all thought it was wonderful, but a week later they were hollering, crucify him, crucify him. They handed him over to the Romans, and the, and the Romans had their part, but ultimately it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. When you realize that, when you when you become aware, and your heart cries out, "Oh God, what have, have I done? My sin against Him. He died for my sin." And here's the other thing: the awareness of what we have done but also the awareness of what he has done. Because when he died on that cross and when he, when he got those scars, he got them. Paying the price so that we could receive mercy. His grace, that blood that flowed that we sang about earlier, So let me just ask you this morning, 
to answer this question, not to me, but to God, to the Lord. Are you aware of your sin against God? And secondly, are you aware that the death of Jesus, the shedding of the blood of Jesus, means the salvation of your soul? You, you have to answer that question before God. I encourage you to do that this morning. Will you stand with me? <clears throat> I was thinking earlier, wouldn't it be great if somebody someday said, hey, I got, I got saved reading the book of Zechariah. <laughs> I got saved in January of 2020 and the pastor was preaching on Zechariah. Like, how many people get saved reading Zechariah? I don't know. But that'd be kind of cool. But Zechariah is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. What we did to him and what he did for us. Have you embraced that? Will you embrace it today? If you haven't, if you haven't already, will you embrace that today? I'd like to lead you in a prayer. If you're here and you'd like to pray with me, I just invite you to do that. Uh, Jesus, uh, our sin, my sin is 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 great, and my guilt is is vast. I I don't even know the extent of it, but I thank you that you have revealed to me much of the darkness and the need of my heart because it's then and I realize my need, Lord, that I can look and see not only what I've done, but I see what you've done and your willingness to come and to be the suffering servant and to take my place and to die and suffer and die for my sin the punishment, the payment, the guilt, my sin. And I just, I, just, I just thank you, Lord, this morning for that. And I confess that my need to you, that I am a sinner in need of your saving grace and your mercy. And I ask you, Lord, that you would, that you would forgive me for my sin and that you would make me your child and that you would enable me to love, know, and serve you all the days of my life until that day I see your scars with my with my own eyes. And I would give you all the praise and glory. And I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. God, God bless you.